The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. Good, so welcome to everyone else now for the official part of this talk, uh, the Sunday Dhamma talk. Um, my name is Venable uh, Bodhidhaja, Pante Bodhidhaja. I am a monk who ordained with Ajahn Brahm. In 2010, I became an Anagarika, and then in 2011, a novice, and in 2012, a fully ordained bhikkhu. Right, so just a few words about myself. Uh, then, uh, for the topic for today's talk, uh, for the people who have been following this, they will be aware. Uh, I'm doing a Sila series, so a series on um, habit, on conduct, on virtue. And we have now reached the third precept to um, be uh, examined and to talk about. Uh, I encourage you, if you haven't listened to the first and the second talk about the first and the second precept, um, to do that, because it is really leading up to what we will be talking about today. So if you take the first precept and the second precept and combine to them together, it's a very, very good preparation for the third precept. And also those three precepts, they form a group together. So in my first talk, when I kind of explained Sila in general, um, they are grouped under the group of bodily behaviors, of bodily conduct. So it means not killing, not harming any beings, not stealing, basically not taking what is not given. And then the third one is uh, not um, engaging in sexual misconduct. So I like to think about this in terms of a simile um, I think I've mentioned it every now and then in the other talks as well. It's like planting a seed and having that plant slowly, slowly develop and grow. And then if we nurture it in the right way, it will um, mature and it will have very nice flowers and it will also have fruits in the end of the process. And we can eat from those fruits and we can be sustained by those fruits. But it is a process that takes time. So the first precept I saw as preparing the ground. And in the first precept, we um, used the word harmlessness to define that. Harmlessness is actually part of all the precepts, but especially uh, the first precept um, fits in there very, very nicely. And it means that we plant the seed of goodness. We plant the seed of humanity and then we can let it develop and grow. And the soil needs to be the right soil for that purpose. And if our soil, if that ground, um, the humus, we talked about humility, which is important, is there, then we have uh, an environment of safety, an environment of refuge, where that seed can be planted into. So that's for the first precept. And for the first precept also to remember we respect and we care 
for all beings. As we have just chanted uh, for the people who were here for that part, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. So that goes out to all living beings out there. Then for the second precept, we start to slightly shift. So now we have respect and we have care for all things. And as I described before, usually when there is a self, the Buddha teaches us that there are things that belong to that self. And we should have respect and care for those things as well. We talked about that last time, that uh, it also uh, includes the bodies of ours. It also includes certain boundaries that we might have. So that really informs us to what will be coming now with the third precept. In terms of the simile of the plant, I see it as enriching the soil. So we have the soil there and we want to make sure that the soil has the right nutrients in it so that the seed that we've planted, the seed of goodness, can start to grow. And we talked about appreciation and we talked about generosity because then instead of taking things, you're actually giving things, you're overflowing. And the word that we talked about there that is very, very important is contentment. Because if we are content, if there is an abundance of good qualities in us, they very, very naturally will start to flow out to other beings. So now we're making sure that the soil is rich in nutrients. So the next step, when those ground rules or when the ground has been prepared and the seed has been planted, now comes the time where we have to nurture that seed to make sure that it can sprout and it can start to, to um, grow into a plant. So today I would like to talk about confidence and commitment as the positive part of uh, the third precept. So it means that we keep watering the plant, that we keep watering the seed, that we make sure it is protected. And that is basically all about relationship, how we relate to other people, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to uh, uh, things, how we relate again to other people's bodies, to other people's wishes, to other people's boundaries. So just a little um, kind of saying that I saw on someone's profile a couple of weeks ago and when I read it um, I found it does actually fit in quite nicely. I had to adjust it a little bit, but um, it goes uh, like this. If you like a flower, you might be tempted to pluck it and walk away. If you love a flower, however, you will water and care for it every day. So the difference there between liking someone or liking something or liking how someone makes us feel and actually loving that person, caring for that person. It's a process. It's a relationship. A relationship is not a thing that just kind of happens. You fall in love and that's it. It's going to be, you know, happy ever after. It's something we have to work on. And that is very important to consider. It's like nurturing that plant, like making sure that that plant gets what it needs. Okay, so let's uh, have a look what it says in the suttas. Um, as you know, for the people who have been following this, I usually use three suttas. 
The first one uh, is called uh, Overflowing Merit, and it's in the Anguttara Nikaya 8th, number 39. And that's just to remind you that all these precepts, we are not just keeping them as rules and as regulations that are kind of arduous and difficult for us. We are keeping these things as a gift towards ourselves and towards other people and the world at large out there. So I just read out that part here where it talks about the five precepts in general. Bhikkhus or monks, the five, these five gifts are great, original, long-standing, traditional and ancient. They are uncorrupted as they have been since the beginning. They are not being corrupted now nor will they be. Sensible ascetics and Brahmins don't look down on them. And then what five? And then it goes through all the five precepts. Today we are focusing on number three. Sorry. So it goes, Furthermore, a noble disciple gives up sexual misconduct. Um, by so doing, they give to countless sentient beings the gift of freedom from fear, freedom from enmity, freedom from ill will. And they themselves also enjoy unlimited freedom from fear, enmity, and ill will. Good. So that is that one, just as a reminder. And then we usually go to the Chunda Sutta, which is in the Anguttara Nikaya 10, in the Book of Tens, and it's number 176, to define what the precept, precept sorry, actually means. And here I have, I'm not quite sure, it's from Sutta Central, but I'm not sure if I chose Ajahn Sujato's or um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, but I will be using um, different translations in this section here to try and draw all the meaning out of um, the Sutta there, because for a change, there is actually quite a bit of information to be found here, which is wonderful. So we actually know what is supposed to be done and what is not supposed to be done. So, for the uh, third precept, if we don't keep it, um, the formula goes like this. They commit sexual misconduct. They have sexual relations with women who have their mother, father, both mother and father, bra brother, sister, relatives or clan as a guardian. They have sexual relations with a woman or a man, of course, who is protected on principle or who has a husband or a wife or a partner or who, whose violation is punishable by law or even one who is already engaged. So there is basically five categories there. But I will be going in a bit more detail. Oops, put it on this side there. When we are talking about the positive side of this precept now. So it always first talks about um, uh, what happens if we uh, behave in the wrong way and how we can abandon that um, behavior. So the next one here goes, having abandoned sexual misconduct, you abstain from sexual misconduct. You do not have sexual relations with those under the age of consent. And that's one of the ways Ajahn Brahm has explained that here. So before we talked about mother, father, relatives. So of course the concept of 
consent was quite different uh, many, many thousands of years ago. But I'm pretty sure that the Buddha would be agreeing with how we see consent these days. Of course, back then, it was more about family. It was more about um, the whole kind of uh, understanding of a group of people more than we in the West, where we usually see it as uh, more individualistic, where we're talking about two people as such. So there we have a different understanding of consent. So number one, make sure it's consensual. And there we are saying, of course, not with people who are under the age of that consent, who are not able to basically give consent because of that. Then it carries on with those who are unable to give consent. And that is the one that we had before, where it talks about by principle. To understand that by Dhamma is actually the word used in the Sutta. So we can talk about people, for example, who are mentally disabled here. They might have a ripe age, uh, according to you know the society or the law they are living in, but because they are mentally disabled, they need to be protected. Another reason for not being able to give consent, which is very, very important, and I hope I can talk about this a bit, a bit more as well when we talk about the fifth precept, is if someone is intoxicated. If you are intoxicated, if the other person is intoxicated, they are not able to give their consent or they are muddled. So alcohol, drugs, oh, if they wouldn't be there in combi combination with so many behaviors out there, uh, we would behave just so much more, so, so much better in our society. So intoxication is a very important point there. And then, of course, this also includes celibate monks and nuns. We are not able to give our consent because we have the, our monastic rules that forbid us from um, doing these kind of things. Again, we have chosen this um, by ourselves. And someone just mentioned as well, so in the fifth precept, we usually talk about uh, uh, sexual misconduct. But when we are talking about monastics, then of course, it is slightly different. The wording there changes when we're taking the eight precepts. And we are completely abstaining from all sexual activities. So we live the brahmacharya, we live a celibate life. And those people who are living a life like that, even if they are not monks or nuns, they have a certain principle that they're abiding by. And that basically uh, doesn't give them the ability when they are following those rules um, to be able to give their consent. All right, good. Uh, let's carry on. Next point, who are not free to refuse consent. To understand that a bit more um, closely, such as students and their teachers, for example. So if there is a certain power imbalance in a relationship, uh, if it's a psychologist and their patient, or if it's a doctor and their patient, or again, if it's a teacher and a student, or even, you know, if it's uh, an adult and a child, as we were saying before, there is a power imbalance. And so often um, people say that a lot of sexual misconduct has more to do about power 
then lust or even, uh, you know, um, sexual energies that might be there. So it's very, very important to consider that point and to make sure that it is an even relationship, that there is consent and that the person, again, is able to give their consent, that they feel safe, that they feel open enough, that they feel... um, Um, what's the word, I don't know, that they can be vulnerable enough that there isn't force um, being applied to converse them into doing certain things because that's all power that is being used in the wrong way there. And then next one, where such conduct would be um, breaking the law. And now, of course, laws are different in different countries. But as you can see, because we go through all these different categories, some of them are actually overlapping. So if something is not covered by the law, for example, it is covered in another category. So please see this as a combination. Don't just focus in on one specific part. It's good to look at it that way. So it's explained in depth and we understand it. But uh, it's, it's quite broad, It's not just this kind of narrow view of looking at it. So that's the law, the law of the country. Or, you know, sometimes you could also see the Dhamma as the law. The Dhamma is sometimes um, uh, kind of explained or um, translated as the law. But of course, yeah, there there is no uh, legal implications, of course, uh, if uh, there is a certain misconduct. And then the last one, or even with one already engaged. So in the suttas it talks about um, um, uh, something about flowers, which is basically the way of explaining that a person has been engaged. When uh, I traveled in uh, Polynesia many, many years ago, they wear flowers and depending on which ear they are wearing the flower, you actually know if they are engaged or not, if they are in a relationship already or if they're not. And also in here I wanted to mention There is informal relationships. There is more formal relationships and there is, of course, marriage as well. So marriage can come in at many, many different areas here as well. But I I would like to put it in here where the person is in a committed relationship with someone else already. Okay, good. So hopefully that covers a lot of ground where this precept actually fits into. The next sutta I usually use is um, the results of misconduct from Anguttara Nikaya 8, number 40. And it very nicely says if certain precepts are not kept, what the results are of that. So it says sexual misconduct when cultivated, developed, and practiced, which means we are engaging in it again and again. It becomes a habit uh, and we don't even think about it anymore and we're like, oh yeah, it's all right, you know, whatever. (laughs) Then it leads, here it says, strong words, hell, the animal realm or the ghost realm. Very often I don't read that out and just kind of say a bad destination. But please understand that this is all accumulation of things that come together. And of course, if there is one act in our life which has been really, really bad, that will stay with us. A lot of people often think, you know, I can do something and then I just forget about it. And that's why so many people have to take drugs or drink alcohol or distract themselves. They can't sleep because the things we do have an impact on us. And especially when we are trying to start and meditate, 
we try to let go, calm down and sit, sit down and become peaceful. And if there are things that have been very strong and very bad in our past, they will keep resurfacing and they will actually take our peace away, not just at nighttime when we try to let go and sleep, but also in meditation when we try to let go and go deep uh, into um, stillness and peace. And they will also obstruct us from attaining um, uh, stages of enlightenment, for example, because we can't generate that peace or we can't rather let ourselves be um, um, ex or experience or fall into these states because these uh, things have happened in our past. And then again, if the dying process happens, a lot of people, uh, when they have near-death experiences, they uh, describe that they have a review of their life and they're feeling how they felt, but they also feel how the people felt they were in contact with, the people um, that they communicated with, that they had a relationship with. And if there are very strong commas that have been done in that lifetime, that's when it will come up. And that's what will inform what will come after um, this lifetime when we go to another life, when we go into another destination. But then it says... The minimum of result, a minimal result it leads to for a human being, so if we are in a human rebirth, is rivalry and enmity. Good. Okay. So that's kind of to make sure we are basing this discussion, we are basing this Dhamma talk on what it says in the suttas. And now let's see if we can um, look at it in a little bit more broader way. So first of all, Sexuality is part of life, just to accept that. And very often there is a big taboo about it and we, we don't talk about it. It's important that it is talked about because if we don't talk about it, people don't understand it um, uh, well enough and they don't really know what, what to do or what not to do or they don't talk to each other and ask each other what would be okay or what wouldn't be okay. So I heard this saying, which is very, very nice. Life is basically, or life equals a sexually transmitted terminal disease. <laughs> so in this human existence, we have come into existence because of sexuality. And sexuality is part of uh, usually... Um, kind of, well, say, a normal life for a human being. So it's important to, um, to talk about it and to have some understanding around it as well. So sexuality and intimacy are awkward and they are vulnerable, especially in the beginning, especially, you know, when we're in our teens and, and our bodies start to change and the hormones kick in and and, uh, you know, our minds start to change as well. Our brains start to, to change. And we are in the process of trying to figure, figure this all out. Where is our place in society? And then uh, the other gender starts to become, uh, um, you know, more interesting. Or we, we are kind of starting to discover where we feel we are placed in this world in terms of sexuality. And that is something which is not easy. And also, please don't think that at a certain point you will have it all figured out. So sexuality and intimacy is something fluid, I feel, that evolves over time. Uh, what is more important is that we work on trust, that we work on confidence, and that we work 
on growing along with each other. And that will, as I showed before with the simile of the flower, that will need time. And it also needs mutual understanding. So please don't worry about having it figured out. As long as we are in a healthy discussion, as long as we are open to what is happening within our own minds and within the minds of the other people, then we should be fine. So sexuality, therefore, requires maturity. So we learn step by step. So we don't jump in heel overhead. Of course, we have all these um, uh, sayings of like falling in love <laughs> and it just kind of happens. And of course, these things internally in the hormonal system, in our minds, these things can happen fairly, fairly quickly. But if we have a little bit of distance, if we take our time, if we do take it slowly, um, we have a much, much better chance of making sure no one gets hurt in the process. And when, uh, ah, yes, no, sorry, the simile is coming later. So first I have the four points um, for a sexual encounter that are good to consider. Number one, at the right time. So I've already explained that a little bit. Please be patient. At the right time, I'm not going to be talking about like sometimes on some homepages, they, oh, yeah, yeah, the morning is better for sex or the evening is better for sex. That is not the right time. The right time is if the people that are going to be engaging in sexual encounters are at the right point, at the right point in their relationship. At the right time, if you're not mature enough, if you're too young, that's why we have certain programs, for example, that are not for a broader audience, because it's just not time yet to um, be able to, you know, think about these things, to expose yourself to these things. So please, at the right time, be patient, take it slowly. And if you really want to have a good relationship, it it, it, it requires a bit more time, but it lasts much longer and it's much, much more fulfilling as well. Number two, with the right person. So, you know, these days I'm hearing there's all these apps and you can you know, instantly meet and it's quick and easy and I don't know what, but you have no idea who you're meeting on the other end. You don't even know their name. You just have a certain profile. You have no idea who they are. They might look trustworthy, but trust and confidence is something which is built over time. You can't just have instant trust. I mean, you can feel that that is there for a certain person, but it is a confirmed confidence as we talk about in the sutta. So confirmed confidence can only happen if time and time again, you see that person, you see yourself, you see how the relationship works, you see what happens when there is difficult situations that you have to go through. And that's how trust is built. So, and then you know if it's the right person or if it's not the right person, if you're the right person as well. So it's, it's always two people that come together or sometimes even more. I don't know what people are doing these days, but anyway. <laughs> so number three, have the right motivation and have the right values. So combine love, intimacy and sexuality. These things go together. Don't separate them out. And again, this takes time. This takes reflection. This takes clarity. And that's what leads into the first point in the right circumstances. 
make sure everybody is safe, make sure everybody is sober, everybody is relaxed. And now when I talk about planning, I'm not saying that you figure out exactly what's going to happen, but that you anticipate a few things, that if you have a partner, that you are thinking of getting um, involved in sexuality, to actually talk about it. How would this feel for you? How would that feel for you? What is okay for you? What is not okay? It is an awkward conversation, <laughs> but let's face it, if you want to stay together, if you want to trust each other and be able to be at ease around each other, please also, you know, talk about these things. And in terms of planning, I also mean be romantic, for example. I mean, I I don't know what's happening out there in the world, but you know, you hear you hear about all sorts of locations that people might might engage in sexual encounters, or at times where there isn't enough room and enough time. So that's what I mean when I talk about planning, when I talk talk about being romantic. Okay, so <laughs> okay, some more, some meat on the bone there. So I'll go through the points again. Number one, at the right time. Number two, with the right person. Number three, right motivation, right values. And number four, the right circ circumstances or in the right conditions. And that means that we are considering things like patience, trust, tenderness and gentleness, perceptiveness, care, intimacy, and love. Okay, I hope that gives you a little bit of um, information there. Someone's smiling in here in the room. I don't know if there's many comments coming in. <laughs> anyway, so one of the things I thought about when I was reflecting on this topic to try and find a simile that might work for people to understand how these things work. And when I talked uh, or when I thought about sexuality, I of course thought about this thing which is called the sex drive. And when I thought about drive, I thought, of, uh, I thought about driving and I said, well, actually, we could bring in a simile here. So when you are driving, you have to make sure you drive carefully, you drive respectfully, and you drive without speeding especially if you are on your L plates or if you are on your P plates. So again, these things take experience. Now, we also obey the rules when we are driving around in cars. So we do nothing illegal. We make sure we don't drink and drive. We don't take drugs and drive. And we don't drink and take drugs and sex drive as well. So it's always consensual. And the other thing that I thought about, even if you get away with something, say you are in your car and there is a certain speed limit and you decide to drive faster than that speed limit. Of course, if there is no police around, if there is no camera around, they won't catch you. But that's not the point. These regulations are there to make sure that we are not endangering anyone, that we are not hurting anyone, and that we don't put ourselves or anyone else on risk, uh, uh, at, at risk. Same thing with sexuality. So I've, I, I felt that kind of fits there quite well. And also to be mindful of the results 
of your actions. And if that clarity isn't there, if you don't know that there are certain rules that uh, it would be good to abide by and to stick to, then it's much, much more likely that you will be swayed into something you don't really want and you end up in a situation that you don't really want to end up. Then, as well, with the cars, we want to make sure we don't get carried away by the flashy and shiny vehicles and all the accessories that come with it. We remember that every car, no matter how it looks, if it's a flashy new car or if it's an old bomb, they're all driven by vulnerable people. So we look at what is beyond the chassis there. We look at what is inside um, and that is what really matters. And that's what we are respecting and that's what we make sure we are caring towards. Now, so you might um, try to reflect. Now, we are opening it up a little bit. We are talking about relationships in general. What is the driving force of your relationship, the romantic relationship, or what is the driving force of your other relationships? Is it about profit or status? Or is it about caring and sharing? Is it about growth? And then if it's an intimate relationship, is it about sexuality? Only sexuality? Or is it about friendship? Is it about companionship as well? So these are things for you to consider. You might want to go through a couple of your relationships and kind of see what, what, what is my motivation? Why do I um, hang out with those people? What happens if those people are in a difficult situation? Am I still their friend? Because friendship is for me really the opposite of the grounds where sexual misconduct happens. If you have a strong foundation of friendship, you can be certain that that relationship and what happens in that relationship will be um, caring um, and will allow both people that are involved to grow alongside each other. Then, of course, like in the ads sometimes, sexuality is often something that is kind of presented in the movies and in the media and in where, where you, God knows where. <laughs> it, it, we're all bombarded with it like an advertisement. And with advertisements, they always just talk about the advantages. They say, oh, there is this product and it's beautiful and once you buy it, you'll be heavy, happy ever after and it's just going to be great. And there's no disadvantages. There's no small print, nothing. You know, it's all just great. And um, that is not the case. Of course, we all know it is exciting, it is interesting, it is enticing, it might be pleasurable on some level. Yes, that is the case. But is it really going to deliver what it promises? Is it really the way it is described out there in the world so often? Is the actual experience really like that? And that also takes very often a bit of wisdom and a bit of experience and a couple of years to be around um, to, to kind of know so one of the stories I wanted to mention here was one story that Arjun Brahm tells when um, he was um, marrying a couple, I think it was. I'm not sure if he tells it about someone else or if it was a couple he was marrying, but I think it was someone he um, uh, helped uh, with the marriage there. And 
as soon as they were uh, married, the, the husband kind of came up to him and said, uh, so this is it. You know, in German, wedding is called Hochzeit, which means the high time. So what, what is coming after the high time? You know, if this is the pinnacle and you go like, was that it? Is, is, is that it? <laughs> and that's kind of something I experience with sexuality, you know, as a lay person. <laughs> you know, when, when you hear all these things and it's all like, wow, this is kind of just the best ever. But then you go like, is this really it? Is this all? <laughs> and then, of course, if you talk like this, I might even get some comments on my talk now where people go, oh, you know, but you're just doing it the wrong way. You know, you, you're not. You, you just don't know how it all works. And and you, and I, I don't think so. <laughs> there is an intrinsic problem with this. Anyway, okay, let's, let's uh, not go too deep into this. And let's go back. One of the things, though, which is important is, <laughs> people are smiling out there, we could engage in a sexual act with another person, but we could really not be touching that other person at all. We could not be in contact with that other person. So it can be removed. And it's very important to understand that sexuality comes with so many other things that have to be right as well. So then you ask yourself, would it really be worth it if those things are not part of the equation? Um, would the other person or yourself be hurt, used or abused in that process? And of course, that's why we have the third precept to make sure these things don't happen. That's why we have laws. That's why all these things are in place to make sure we are protected. We are guided in this area. So as a little summary there, you don't demand for, make or take love, but you nurture, grow and show love. Unfortunately, so many people get harmed and get hurt. Uh, because there is this problematic side of sexuality and of sexual uh, misconduct. So it's very, very important that we see, that we understand very, very clearly what is going on. And if we are not careful, as we described before with the car, we can drive that car or that car can even drive us crazy or can drive us to somewhere where we don't even want to go. Also, sexuality could be described as a fire. And in the old days, fire was very, very helpful. It was important. But it could be used for cooking. It could be used to light up a room. But it could also um, burn ourselves. We could also burn ourselves if we are not careful. So it is a very, very powerful um, energy that is there that we have to be careful with and use in the right way if we are uh, incl inclined to do so. Good. As you know from the other talks I've given in the past, I always try to have like two domains um, to talk about. Uh, now we are kind of moving into the positive side of things. And one domain 
that very often comes up with sexuality uh, is perfectionism. And perfectionism is here now versus this notion of good enough. So perfectionism means it's always out of reach. It's never, you're never quite there. Perfectionism is something which doesn't really exist, this world, and we are imperfect. We have to face that. And the good enough is the other approach where we are uh, realizing what is already there and where we are growing those positive qualities. And we get closer and closer to perfection that way, but we kind of come from the right end of the spectrum. And there was a little um, uh, comic strip or, a, uh, or actually just one drawing that I saw online, which was quite nice. So they had two shops. They had the good enough shop on one side and they have the perfect shop on the other side. And on the perfect shop, uh, you have all these kind of signs plastered and it says opening soon, maybe, and it says closed because you're never quite close to, to, uh, to perfection yet. And the good enough shop is of course open because they're good enough, you know, just uh, go along with, with, uh, with the good enough. As you know from the past, I usually like to go through a negativity sp spiral and a positivity spiral. So, if we are caught up in this notion, this understanding of perfectionism and suspicion, because perfectionism means you always suspect that something is not quite right, something is not quite there yet, and that leads to comparison. So we start to compare ourselves with other people, with a dream, with ideals, so we have to be careful there. We start to measure. We start to judge. Then that leads to a lack of trust. It leads to fear and it leads to control. So very often what might happen in relationships that are unfortunately not very healthy is that people try to control each other in that relationship instead of giving each other space, encouraging each other. And that, in turn, will lead to disconnection. It will lead to an estrangement. It will lead to otherness. It will basically not allow intimacy to happen. And then, of course, it's a breeding ground for shame, for devaluing yourself or even your partner. And then it flows into disengagement. It flows into resignation and if it goes even further, it grows into isolation, it grows into loneliness. And then it goes round and round and round and round because we don't think we are perfect enough, we don't think it's good enough, uh, we suspect something is going on, even though maybe something might not be going on, we are like, okay, it's, it's actually normal. <laughs> Imperfection is the norm, <laughs> not perfection is the norm. So that's the negative uh, spiral there. And one thing that I was reflecting on is also sexuality seems to be something which is very, very tightly wound up with personality, with how we perceive ourselves in the world. Uh, it's also tightly wound up with worth, with lovability or with status. And that is actually quite sad because that is something which leads to pressure and to expectations. So we have the media, we have our peers, and very sadly, sometimes it's even our partners that uh, have that pressure or expectation of us. 
uh, or other people in our lives that love us. And love would be an unconditional love. So this is, again, this is more like controlling people than actually loving people. Now, also one of those myths out there, you know, very often when you go and look at some things online, some, you know, you have some articles, uh, they talk about how you should be expressing your sexuality. And they very often don't talk about not expressing your, your uh, sexuality. That's something which happens as well. There's a lot of people out there, uh, especially a lot of people in the mon monastery, who are not, you know, celebrating or expressing their sexuality. And then, of course, they also talk about how often and with whom and all these kind of things. But, and then, then you get studies and then people start, start to compare themselves with other people. <laughs> you are in a relationship with one person. You're not in a relationship with what the world thinks out there. And you don't have to go and read. I mean, a bit of information is okay, but you don't go and read up on the internet how you should behave towards your partner. Crying out loud, talk to your partner. Ask your partner. Find out where you stand. Find out what is okay, what is not okay, and find a way to work together around this. Don't think what your neighbors are doing. You know, not just in this area, in, in other areas as well. And excuse me now, um, this is a little bit more for, for maybe the young people and uh, also a bit more modern language there. Sometimes you, you, you use language that people kind of understand the point. Uh, so the, uh, it goes like this. Not how many people you have laid and how often, but how many people you have loved. It's one of those things out there in the world which I'm hearing, which are so destructive, especially apparently under, uh, it, with, with peers and with young people, where they have lists and uh, how many experiences they had and, and all that kind of stuff. Please, please stop this. It's not healthy. It's not, it's, it's, it's not helpful. It's not wholesome. We love other people, and that is actually what we will remember. Just imagine you're on your deathbed. On your deathbed, you will be reflecting on how many people you have touched deeply and on how many people you have been touched by deeply. You will not think about how many sexual encounters you had. This is not like a bucket list or something, you know, you, 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 you tick off. It is about relating to yourself, to your body, to your values, and to other people out there in the world. So, don't let yourself be defined by what the world tells you. Be yourself, be real, and have real relationships. It's even in the word there. A relationship means that we can be open and vulnerable enough to show who we are. To another person so we don't have to pretend we don't have to hide we don't have to you know work on ourselves to kind of put up a, a beautiful facade and if we trust another person we don't have to be afraid that they will uncover certain things that might be difficult but that we can work through together as a team so that requires self-inquiry though so we know thyself, but also be thyself. So first, understand, reflect, see what's going on, and then um, be authentic. So in terms of the 
positivity spiral here. So we had the um, not good enough, the perfect perfectionism, the suspicion. And the opposite of that is hope, is faith, is trust, is encouragement. So when we start with trust and confidence, that will lead to that real relationship that I was talking about. That will lead to a real deep friendship. That is what will lead to connection. That is what will lead to belonging. That is what will lead to intimacy. And you're not afraid to be intimate with that person because you know you can trust them, they can trust you. Then built on that is commitment, loyalty, and that will, again, uh, make sure you don't go and look for other partners or whatever because you have such a beautiful relationship with someone you really want to work on and you don't want to disappoint. That will give you the power and strength to be patient, to have perseverance, to forgive, to be open, and then to grow and that will also allow you if you go through this whole process to understand what beauty really is what real beauty is not the outside appearance but what is happening inside of another person so you won't just give up once the slightest challenge uh, arises you will be able to go through the process to grow together and to learn together right so, it is unavoidable that relationships will lead to difficulty. And that's what Arjun Brahm often does when he um, is part of a marriage uh, ceremony. He tells the people there are the three, oops, there we go, three rings of marriage. So the first ring is the engagement ring. And then the second ring is the wedding ring. But the third thing, which surely will come, is the suffering <laughs> so it is to be expected very often i hear people talking about now you're in the safe um harbor of marriage you're actually out at sea <laughs> you're actually going into new um new territory to explore together so there is a safety of course and a trust that develops uh, between the people but there is a lot of work that needs to be done as well so understand this is normal and even if you trust people some people will live up to your trust and some people won't live up to your trust or will never live up to your trust then there comes a point where you have to step back have boundaries um, disengage uh, from a relationship that might not be um, healthy. But one thing that I feel is very, very important, especially with this thing, hope, to understand that the investments you have done into a relationship, they are never in vain. If you have done the right thing, if you have done it with the right mind and with the right heart, it it has a purpose. And even if it sometimes... Um, kind of seems uh, that, that you can't even succeed, it is still worth it. And I have this beautiful quote here from um, Václav Havel, who was um, the president of uh, um, Czechia for a while. 
and he wrote well it's not a poem but it's it's just something he wrote about hope that i would like to read out here because also with relationships especially if it's the first couple of relationships that you have um they they will very often break and there will be broken hearts but it doesn't mean that they don't have any purpose or that they are not worth it. It is worth opening it up. It is worth trusting other people and trusting yourself and learning in the process. So anyway, Václav Havel says about hope here. Hope is not the same as joy that things are going well or the willingness to invest in an enterprise uh, or in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success but rather it is an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more unproportious the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. So very often you just see the last part, which I want to read out again. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. Good, right. It is already 10 o'clock. Um, I don't know, do we have lots of questions and things or... Um, we have one question. Ah, uh -huh, just one. Okay. No, hang on. So uh, maybe, maybe I will, I will carry on for another little while then, if we don't have too many. Because one thing that I wanted to mention uh, when I was thinking about this, uh, this, or when I was preparing for this talk, I was sitting in my hut, and I was looking out of the window, and you know, the beautiful scenery and the trees and the road. And then there was this huge, really huge sparkle on the road. And I thought, my goodness, I walked past this road, you know, every day and there's nothing on the road that I can, you know, perceive or see when I don't look out for it. And there is this huge sparkle and it lasted maybe for a couple of minutes. And it was, of course, the sun reflecting in something. So I went out and I had a check. Uh, it was about 80 meters away from my hut on the path and I had to scramble around a little bit and I don't know if I found the exact object because there is a few but what I found is the prop I've brought around this is this little shard of glass and because the sun was shining exactly from the right angle and I was sitting exactly at the right point it sparkled like this huge thing. And that's what I wanted to mention about beauty and about how meta works. So when this glass shard is lying there and we turn it exactly in the right way, it's a little bit dirty, as you might see. It's, it's, it's pointy, it's, it's not shaped in the right way. But if you turn it exactly into the right position. You're in the right position, the light is in the right position, the little thing is in the right position, it sparkles beautifully. And that is what metta, what loving kindness really is. So we learn to see the beauty 
in things. We see the beauty in imperfect things. We might have to turn them around a little bit this way and that way. But if we do that skillfully, if we do that mindfully, if we do that carefully, they will start to sparkle and to shine. So you might be in a relationship for many, many years and thinking, oh, you know, same old partner, same old thing, same old whatever. But if you are able to turn them or put yourself <laughs> in the right point of view, make sure the light of kindness and compassion and love is there, they will start to sparkle and shine again. And also in terms of value, when we talk about value, it's like a banknote, for example. A banknote, if we take it and we, you know, fold it or we make it dirty or we stand on it or uh, we even rip it in pieces, it doesn't take away the value of that banknote. And that is basically the same thing with a human being, with a human mind. The value is almost intrinsic. It is there. And whatever happens to it, the dirt, the bruises, whatever we might have, is just an outer experience, uh, outer layer there. So as it, the saying goes, we shouldn't be judging the book by its cover but we think about the content. Great, okay, let's do the short contemplation at the end, as I usually do, to get in touch with uh, what we were talking about, and then uh, uh, let's take some questions. Right, uh, so please, uh, no, we do, do contemplation first. <laughs> Thank you. So please find a comfortable posture. Gently close your eyes. Relax your body as much as you can. Maybe take a few deep breaths to relax and let go. And then reflect as we always do. Try on a certain mind state and see how it feels. So remember a time when you were unconditionally loved by another being, by another person or even by an animal or pet, and you could fully trust them. A time when you were accepted for who you are, seen and understood, supported, and encouraged. Basically, get a feeling for how it is if someone loves you unconditionally. And then let's think of the other side. Think of an occasion when you unconditionally loved, cared for another being. When you stuck by their side, when you offered support and reassurance. 
when you were a true and loyal friend and companion. How did that feel? How did it feel to love someone unconditionally? And then think, imagine you are the Buddha. You are a spiritually highly developed being. You are full of unconditional love, care, understanding, and forgiveness. You are freed from all cravings. You are fully trustworthy and you are committed to peacefulness and you inspire hope and confidence. How does that feel? How do people around you perceive you now? How do they feel around you? Okay, so we can gently open our eyes again and hopefully you were able to get in touch with what it might mean, what it might feel to have unconditional love, to really care for another person and to be trustworthy and committed. Okay, let's see what we got. <laughs> okay, a few questions, aren't oh, they? A few, yes, yes, yes. Okay, let's start. The first one is, what is Bhante's opinions on relationship between two persons uh -huh. who are married, which are not happy in their marriage? So in this secret mm. relations, what motivates them to stay in, in their marriage? Mm. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's always nice to try and go back to the suttas and find something and it's very very difficult in a situation like this to to find anything so we are really thinking about a relationship like marriage where people are together and it is a relationship that is working it's a relationship where people trust each other and where it's not uh, you know it, 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 it wouldn't happen <laughs> because the relationship is so good uh, so I would try and encourage people to work on the grounds that you make sure these things don't even have to happen. And then you don't have to try and justify them or not justify them. Um, but I personally feel that if two people are married to each other, if two people are in a committed relationship together, that basically means 
that they should be able to trust each other, that they should be able to um, be open with each other, that they should be able to work through difficulties that might arise, and that they can catch them early when they're actually developing. So I don't really want to go into the area, you know, trying to justify or not justify or whatever, to really focus on where it all starts. And the problem is, if people are married and they are engaging in, in these kind of things outside of their marriage, um, I, I just can't imagine that it doesn't have an impact on the relationship which is already there. And that will undermine the whole situation and will actually just make it worse than making it better. So it is really, really important to, to talk about it. And then once it is actually talked about, then, you know, that, that's a different issue. But that's also one thing I don't really want to go into. But if it is talked about and the people, you know, say, okay, this, this first relationship is not working anymore. But this idea of still keeping something and then adding something else, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. And it, it doesn't feel honest to me um, to, you know, have have different different pans on the cooker at the same time. It's, it's, it's just, yeah, for, for, for me, I, I can't really wrap my, my, my mind around it. That, that's, sorry, that's the only thing I, I, I can offer here. Yes. Next question. I have a little kitty. And I was thinking one day to sterilize my cat. Right. But I'm not sure if I have the right motivation to do it. So which is a good thought to bring up to do this? Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. Sterilizing your kitty. Well, I mean, just from remembering, uh, at the monastery, we used to have, uh, unfortunately, people who would um, drop off their pets every now and then and some of them were cats so please don't take this as something to do we even had a sign up at the monastery which was saying dropping off your <laughs> your pets at the monastery is bad karma uh, but once we got those cats uh, we we did take care of them for a little while before we made sure they find a safe home and uh, we actually decided as a community to um, to have them sterilized uh, because we didn't want to have more cats uh, uh, in 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 the monastery. Uh, yes, so f for us it was kind of because they were living in a monastery, it was easier to kind of say, okay, this is a monastic environment. If we have uh, animals living in in a monastic environment and we don't want to have more and more and more, it was um, easier for us to um, maybe say justify. The other thing that comes to mind for me is often when people uh, talk about their pets being quite sick and old and all this, this and um, should they, you know, bring it to the vet and have it uh, have it put to sleep. So what usually the teachers say there is, please check with your pet. Try to involve your pet in the discussion there. And I don't know if that's something you can do <laughs> with your pet in, in in this in this respect as well. But just to explain to that being to connect with that being to try to be somehow in a conversation with that being as 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 much as you can to explain to it with your mind with your heart why you're doing this what it entails and and why um because there there is so many problems that that do come with it yes 
Okay. <laughs> Next one. Next one. How long did it take Bante to believe in reincarnation or rebirth? Right. Can one become a monk if one does not believe <laughs> the in, in after rebirth. death one turn into another living being? Hmm. I mean, as for myself uh, and as for many other people that I know that have uh, been exposed to Buddhism, uh, for them, it kind of felt like a coming home. It kind of felt like this makes sense. So it, it never really was a question for me. It was the only thing which which was logical, which made sense. And I found uh, and or I reconnected or I was able to um, connect with Buddhism and say, oh, yeah, it's okay. So, so there wasn't, wasn't really a question mark for me personally. Um, it is an important concept uh, in terms of right view to understand karma and to understand rebirth. So we would, of course, um, think that people who come into monastic life have their right view fairly straightened out to a degree. But there is cases where people still have a question mark there and are, are not, not, not sure or, or don't, you know, don't really know. So what we uh, make sure at the monastery in, uh, in Bodhinyana is that the teachings are very clear in the first two years and that these things are emphasized as well to bring that teaching, explain it to them, elaborate on it. But we wouldn't accept uh, not accept someone because it's not there. But it is something that very naturally um, does grow over time. But uh, different people are at different uh, points. Uh, in in this in this journey. Okay, next question. Mm -hmm. In what way does sexuality affect the path of dharma? Okay, in, in what way does it affect the path of dharma? As I was saying, it is a very very strong energy. It's an energy that quite easily can pull us, drive us in areas that we don't really want to go. Uh, it can be uh, a distraction. Um, it can be even, you know, if you're very serious about the path, it can even be um, a waste of time. <laughs> there is this this kind of story of um, one of the monastics who was, uh, I think, in a monastery in Thailand, and they would be sitting for two hours um, at nighttime usually. And the teacher, uh, a famous uh, Thai Ajahn, uh, I, um, his name escapes me, um, who was leading that meditation session. And that monastic was sitting in meditation there and was having all sorts of sexual thoughts going through his mind at that time. And because they attract you, because there is a certain, you know, um, activity connected with it, a liking and attraction, it's kind of entertaining. <laughs> but it doesn't lead anywhere if you want to, if you really take this... Uh, Buddhist path serious as a monastic or even as a practitioner, then it it strays you from 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 that path at at a certain point. So you know that person was uh, having those sexual fantasies for about two hours, and it was one of the easiest meditation to get through because there was distraction and stuff happening. But the monk got up and walked past that that monk and. Obviously, uh, he was able to read minds. <laughs> so he walked past that monk, just looked at him and said, you just wasted two hours of precious time and walked out. 
So I, I, I hope that um, that uh, is there uh, as an answer. But as I was saying, we are giving these talks for lay people. We are encouraging everyone to keep the five precepts. And if you engage in sexuality as it is part of life, please do it in the right way. Please don't go, don't go overboard. Please don't hurt yourself. Please don't hurt other people. Uh, we get some comments, do we? <laughs> yes. Uh, that was the last question, Bhante, yes, at this please. point. But there are some comments that I'll, I'll read it out. Oh, okay. Why we still got a bit of time. Okay. Thank you, Bhante, for this amazing, open and compassionate discussion around okay. sexuality and sexual conduct. Uh-huh. It's so wonderful and uplifting to see a monk address a topic that can be so taboo, awkward, okay. difficult <laughs> and diverse in such a confident, calm, compassionate and real manner. Okay. This is especially pertinent for more conservative cultures where many people do not have the freedom, knowledge, huh. tools or vocabulary to have such a discussion. So great to pave the way. Very inspiring. Okay. So uh, thanks very much. Comment. But also, please, if anything I've said has hurt anyone, because as I was saying before, this is a very kind of slippery slope or a very difficult topic. Uh no no intention from from my side to you know harm or hurt anyone but just to bring this in the open to discuss it and as i was saying with the precepts before it's always a reflection and it's a reflection in the guideline that you do for yourself so please take it in your heart and reflect on it and if something that i might have said wasn't wasn't very skillful think it through and uh, work with it uh, in your uh, circumstance mhm Yes, I think that was the last questions and wonderful. Yeah, so okay, so let's pay respects to the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha. Oops, <laughs> here we go.